Welcome to the Weekly Reboot, your regular Friday debrief coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond. Radio. Oh. I was going to be a radio, um, I was going to, well, I was going to work in either radio or television. I did like radio when I was um, growing up at, at, at high school. I volunteered at the local BBC radio station and did all of that and... Um, I community think I radio. I vaguely remember you telling me that mm. once before. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I don't know, it's one of those things which I always say I got into IT by accident. Today we're going to be talking to Andy Kalk. He is the CTO of Marketplacer and has worked and been a leader in a lot of well known agile and digital teams here in Australia, but also internationally. And it was my lucky day that he could give up some time to talk to us for the podcast. Uh, I am Andy Kelk. I am uh, the CTO at Marketplacer. Uh, Marketplacer is a software as a service company for people who want to run marketplaces. And I've been here for about two and a half years. Uh, and I'm a software developer by background and now just general doer of things. So it started out originally as a company called Bike Exchange. So Bike Exchange uh, was the first and biggest marketplace for buying and selling bikes and bike accessories and clothing and so on. Um, so the two founders started that about 11 or 12 years ago now. And they initially built a platform from scratch to do this. So it started out as classified adverts, so buy my bike. Um, then moved into more of a retail e-commerce space as well as the classified space. So bike shops came on board and would sell bikes and, and accessories. And then over the years, the, the, one of the smartest things they did was to go out to other people who said, I'd like to do one of those as well. And A, go and do that, but B, do that with the same technology and repurpose rather than just kind of copy paste do a different one copy paste do another one over here they actually said well let's build a platform and then over the years as that developed you know the realization came well we've built a great platform here and, and it's working really well for these businesses who we have invested in how about we go out and try and sell that to people who who, who would like to build marketplaces as well so yeah i mean the 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 comparison with Shopify is, is probably reasonable. I mean, Shopify is probably a much lower barrier to entry because you own what you have. You can sell it. You can go down to Aussie Post and, and send it. It's, it's pretty easy to get started. Whereas with a marketplace, you're that one level removed. You're now dealing with merchants who have their own fulfillment and their own um, things that they're going to sell out. And uh, you've got to be able to bring together those onto one place. So it's not just... I've got some things mm. I want to post them off. It's actually now working in a B2B environment. So yeah. you're working with other businesses to sell on your platform. So for us as a business, we, we see ourselves both as a technology provider, but also as a provider of, uh, we, we do some professional services, but we also um, have a lot of IP around running marketplaces ourselves. We say a lot that we know because we do. Mm. So you're not just saying, use the technology, you're also getting expertise from people who've run marketplaces for many, many years successfully. Um, because a lot of businesses are now getting into this space and they're saying, okay, I can see that Amazon are over here or eBay are over there and, and Catch Group are over here and they're, they're doing marketplaces. 
how do I become the marketplace for my particular industry? Mm. If, I, if I'm selling um, a, a surfboards, for instance, how do I become the go-to destination for everything surfing, as an example? Um, so you're getting lots of businesses who are looking at that, and they might have their own expertise in, in retail, in e-commerce, mm. but when it comes to actually running a marketplace, there's a whole other level of, of expertise that they need, which we can help them with. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about your background, including you know, the... the travel and working in different countries? Mm. So from my first developer job, which was kind of a semi-developer job, I suppose, I, I made a connection with somebody who then introduced me to a small startup out of the UK, um, out of London, who had got this aim. They'd built um, or they'd bought technology, actually, from one of the failed dot-com startups and they were going to go out to market with this technology and say we can give this to you as a service. Um, so in those days we actually called it application service provider, ASP, but these days you'd call it software as a service. So it was a monthly license fee, which for an e-commerce platform at that time nobody else was doing. It was all install it on your own servers, yeah. run it yourself. What year was that? So this was 2001 okay. that we started doing that. Yeah. Um, and we, we quit, pretty quickly built up a, uh, an impressive customer base in the UK um, with, with some big you know, high street retailers using the platform. Um, and I went from being sole developer other than the CTO. I'd taught myself Perl um, during university days and then suddenly started using that in anger, which um, I think was... Well, we got, we, got, we got done what we needed to get done, but I would not like to look back at that code right now. It was pretty awful. Um, but we, I, I went from developing and then to leading a team of developers, you know, the grand title of head of development, which was really a group of three people, I think, as developers. Um, and then as the company grew, stepped aside and, and took on a role as head of integration, which was looking after all of the integrations coming into and out of the platform. And it was through that we actually opened, um, through doing integrations, we opened an office in Bangkok as a um, lower cost development centre um, to do integration work. And it so happened that at the same time uh, I'd married an Australian, we decided that, that Melbourne would be a good place to move to, where, she, where she's from, a um, good place to raise a family. And so the, the confluence of those meant that I was able to pack up everything I had in London, move over to Bangkok and um, work there for a year, which was a, a really interesting experience. Um, taught me a lot about working in a different culture. It was my first time um, really in, in Asia. Um, also taught me a lot about, um, I think in retrospect, about remote work mm -hmm. and, and how not to make it work because we didn't make it work very well. Um, we, we used to relish those... Uh, those hours during the day when the UK were asleep and we could actually get stuff done. And then as mm. soon as both offices came online, it was pandemonium. And then from Bangkok, actually moved then on to, on to Melbourne. And it was while I was in, in Bangkok, I was looking at Melbourne and thinking, do I go and just keep working for this company uh, remotely? Which my experience in Bangkok taught me was probably not a good idea. I think if we couldn't service an office of 50 people, servicing a one-person band over on the other side of the world will probably be quite tough. So I, I looked for jobs in Melbourne which require Pearl. And one of the first ones which came up was a company called um, realestate.com.au, as they were then. Probably still got that Pearl code. Uh, there's probably a, probably a little bit there. 
Um, and I interviewed over, over the phone uh, with a couple of the people from, from realestate.com.au, got offered a job. Um, and as, as I had the spouse visa, I, I didn't even need to get sponsored, which was fantastic. Um, and they, you know, they, at that point, they were, they'd said, well, we're, we're exhausting the supply of Pearl people in Melbourne. Yeah. We need to go overseas. And they were hiring people from the US, from the UK. Um, I think I counted as, a, as an overseas person. Um, so I, I started working at REA Group in 2007. Uh, initially as a software developer, spent about uh, probably six months doing that and then one of the leads left so I put my hand up and became a lead software developer. Um, we had three leads leading different teams for the core platform, for the uh, real estate agent experience and for the consumer experience. So I looked after the consumer experience team. We had this 10 year old code base which had grown arms and legs and had no tests and was very fragile and you 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 know very much the classic whack-a-mole of you fix something over here and something else breaks somewhere else um, you know and, and the company was maturing from uh, a company which had um, done everything just ad hoc uh, you know deploying code was literally going into a production server and editing it on the on the server um, planning things was just well let's just do whatever we need to do um, so they'd matured from that stage, and they'd done the classic thing of um, we, we've gone from no process at all to add process, add process, mm. add more process, add more process. And when I first got there, I recall they were in the, the midst of a big replatforming of one of the sites, and they missed the deadline. Um, and this was in January, which for me coming over from the UK, I thought, well, January's just another month. I didn't realize that Australia just mm. shuts down for January. Um, and they'd, they'd, they'd completely missed the deadline and they weren't going to hit it for another three months or something like that. But there didn't seem to be any sense of urgency around that. It was just, oh, okay, we missed it. Let's move the deadline and, you know, we'll get there eventually. So they had a very heavyweight process. So a business analyst would build a product requirements document. And that would be many, many pages in, in Word and it would outline every single use case and everything that needed to be done. That would then get signed off by the lead business analyst and then some of the lead developers would get involved in that and eventually you'd get a, you'd get a sign off and yep, this is okay to go. And only at that point would it then go to one of the developers who would be assigned to write a technical overview, as it was called, a TO. Um, which was a, a text document which would outline everything that you needed to do to deliver this thing. Uh, once you'd done that, you'd get that reviewed, and that would go through many, many cycles of review. I, I remember getting distinctly getting feedback on a review, which was around the punctuation in there. You know, and, and I had very to, important. It, it is, <laughs> you know, you've got, to, you've got to make sure you get your commas in the right places. Tenses. Yeah, that's right, um, or else somebody might not be able to write the code. And then only then, once that had been approved and moved into the right CVS directory of approved, then would somebody start working on it. And these were big pieces of work. So this was a, you know, a whole feature around rebuilding one of the um, featured listing slots on the site. You know, it, was a, it was a probably a good three months worth of work to actually do it, not counting the, all that upfront design and everything else. Um, and there was a very interesting um, thing that happened, which was a lot of the developers and the people in the team started to say, well, this is not a 
great way of doing things. We're hearing about these other people who are doing things called sprints and they, they do things in small chunks. And um, we had some other developers who had been um, very aware of XP and doing planning poker and um, another developer who had brought in a lot of practices around retrofitting tests into the, into the code base. Um, so there was a kind of a groundswell from the developers themselves to do things in a different way. And, you know, I guess a bit of beating on the door of various managers and, and execs to say, can we do this? Um, eventually, uh, there was a, a big change in leadership in the REA group, probably around 2008. Um, and a new CIO came in, a guy by the name of Daniel Ertley. And Daniel had an edict, I guess, from, from the board and from the CEO to really get under the covers of how product development was done and to improve. Um, so one of the first things he did was to contact ThoughtWorks uh, and we got a number of very uh, smart people from ThoughtWorks came into the organization, um, both as consulting and, and also embedded into some of the teams. And really from there, that's where the, the REA Agile journey started. Wow. Um, I've forgotten it was so process heavy before all of that. I thought it would have just been chaotic and startup. It, re it really was. It, 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 had, it had gone from chaotic and startup-y to really, really bureaucratic mm. uh, because that's what happens. You know, mm. things, things aren't working quite right. We're not, we're not being consistent or we're not planning things properly or we've had some production incidents and so add process, add process, mm. add process. And so uh, I very much remember Rich Dernal coming into the organisation and, and talking to us about you don't need to get everything signed off. You don't need to have this you know, huge product document where you plan everything in advance um, and, and talking through just a lot of those basic agile mindsets around you know, last responsible moment and all those kinds of things. Um, so that was my first um, exposure to any of that. And, and I, I also remember that at the time, I, I'd gone from being one of the lead developers to the lead developer. I was then looking after 25 developers. The hiring had been really, really hard. So Perl as a platform at that point still was, some people were using it, but it was definitely being replaced in, in a lot of organizations. But the reputation of REA in the market had been pretty bad as a hiring organization. Mm -hmm. And I, I distinctly remember putting an offer out to one person and the feedback coming back, no, it's just not enough. You couldn't pay me enough to work there or words to that effect. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there was certainly a, a bad vibe about the organisation at that time, um, which is, you know, amazing when you look at, at now, obviously, it's a very desirable place to work. Mm. And it shows you that, you know, that, that kind of change is absolutely possible in an organisation. Yeah. Do you put it down to some of those agile ways of working? Try not to absolutely. let my bias steer, steer that conversation. But. Oh, without doubt. Yeah, with, without doubt. I think, you know, the... Um, there was a lot of things that happened at the same time. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of change in, in leadership from lots of different roles. The the different ways of working around agile absolutely contributed to that. I think also the the business itself probably got a bit more focus in what it wanted to do. Um, I think it it had gone through a period of. Mm, lazy is probably the wrong word, but I think maybe there was an element of complacency mm. of. We don't need to make this thing better because 95% of the real estate agents in Australia list with us or mm. you know, whatever the number was, um, which makes that a 
consumer experience becomes a, a secondary concern at that point because you've got the content, you've got the, um, the saturation, <laughs> you've got the eyeballs. Yep. And so you don't need to make the search experience better because people will come there because the listings are there. Mm-hmm. And obviously the story of real estate in, in Australia is very much realestate.com.au and domain. And I, I think it would be fairly objective to say that Domain had the better product for, for a long time in terms of the, ex- the customer experience, the design, the, the user experience. Um, but REA had the content, and so that, that, that would always win out. What was interesting was at the same time, Google came into the market and said, we're going to start putting real estate listings on a map, on Google Maps, and it'll be free. Everyone can just put their listings on there and we'll show them. And that um, had, had been expected. I think that it had, they'd tipped their hat earlier, but it came into the market earlier than anyone really thought it would happen. And that really presaged a change within REA to look at if, if this is free, if Google is doing it for free, what are we doing that's different? Mm. What's our differentiator for both the real estate agent and for the consumer. So really actually focusing on the customer at that point um, made, a, made a, a big difference. And a, and a lot of you know, very smart people came into the business at the same time and, and drove a lot of those conversations. So I think that, f- that, that kind of combination of a better focus on what the product is, mm. uh, a, 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 a leadership change, and also the adoption of those agile ways of working. I think the three of those all really worked in harmony to make, you know, to sow the seeds of what the organisation is today. Mm, so I went then. You know, we're talking about me here. This is all about me. <laughs> yeah, of course. My journey then from REA. I, I did about three and a half years at REA. I then moved on to a very similar business overseas, in uh, based out of Malaysia, called iProperty. And iProperty was essentially the realestate.com.au of Southeast Asia. So operating in Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong at that point. Um, I came in as the CIO or CTO, whichever you want to call it, and essentially looking after all of the technology teams in that that region. Um, So that was coming from REA, which... You know, had a lot of money and a lot of uh, ability to hire people. Coming from Australia, which has quite a mature um, technology market, um, it was a, a, a very different environment that I moved into. So, um, you know, I think in terms of technology maturity, there was definitely a gap there, and and I think that's over the years that's that's that gap has closed. But at, certainly at that time. I remember Googling Agile in Malaysia because uh, I was trying to find the local community group that I could get involved with, and there just wasn't. There was nothing. There was, a, uh, there was me. There was a Scrum user group yeah. um, who had, a, I think, a closed group which you had to apply to get into, and I kind of went, oh, that sounds a bit hard, and I don't really like Scrum anyway. So, you know, I, I actually started the Agile Malaysia group yeah. um, at that point, which I think persists today, it's still going. Uh, it's been through a few different hands since then. Um, so I, I, I kicked that off with some of my team and I talked through what, what that meant to me and, and we, we, we went through a lot of cultural change, I think, in how we approached things. Um, my job was, was across many different businesses as well. So I was having to 
balance between do we centralize things, do we decentralize, um, and and there's never a correct answer to that. I think it, a lot of it depends on where you're at in your in your evolution as a business, and, and we we went more towards decentralized at that point. Um, so I spent yeah probably what three and a half years working through there. We we had some massive growth in that business. Um, we we made some acquisitions. We moved into Indonesia. Um, we you know had had very good um, growth and and you know, the, the ASX liked us a lot and that, that all worked really well. Um, and for me personally, it was a, just a you know really interesting experience, very different from working in Australia. Mm. How long was that for? So three and a half years. You really so I, a lot. I did. I spent a lot of time in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in, in Jakarta, um, just you know visiting different offices. Um, you know, we we would the board and strategy meetings we'd do would be rotate between each of those countries as well, which was which was really nice. Get to see all the different businesses and how they operate. Um, and then on a personal level, many holidays to Thailand and so on through. Okay. You know, and all two of those kids things. later by then. So, first kid had been born in Bangkok, actually, uh, has a Thai birth certificate. Oh, wow. Um, and my daughter was born actually three months or, well, six, six months before we, we moved to Malaysia. Oh, wow. So, I, I distinctly remember being at REA um, and, and hearing about this job at iProperty and contacting my wife and saying, you know, this, this job's come up and I, I know the person who's involved in it, it looks really interesting, but, you know, we're that point we've got a two two month old daughter we're not going to move she's like well mm. might why not you know why why not and you know I, I i had written it off in my mind as well how can you do that with yeah, a yeah. small child um and i'm really glad i took the plunge because it was you know it was a great move to make um and actually being in malaysia having um the ability to have people help you out, having an expat community. It's a very different way of raising a child mm. as well. And my son went, started primary school in Malaysia with people from all different countries um, in, a, in, a, in a British school. Um, and that was, I think, a great introduction for him and, and for both of them, really, in not just, you know, this is where you grew up and you've got to tie to this place. You're, you're citizens of, of many different countries, mm. which has been really nice. Um, so I spent yeah three and a half years there. Then came back to Melbourne. I was offered a role um, at Australia Post, so which I remember is it well. where we first met. Um, and my and my my thinking at that point was when you when you were over in in Malaysia. I always knew I'd come back at some point, and obviously the later you leave that with school and all those kind of things, the harder it gets. So uh, this opportunity came up. It was um, it was in Melbourne, whereas you know I was approached about various different things throughout. You know, when you're there, people ping you about things, mm. and they would be in Brisbane or Sydney, and you think, well, it's closer to Melbourne than Kuala Lumpur is, but still, when you get something in Melbourne, you think, well, that's that's actually a really good opportunity. You know, it's, it was a, a pretty senior role doing digital stuff and thinking, well, those kind of roles don't come along that often. Mm. So I thought, well, you know, let's let's give this a go. Maybe this is something to try. So I uh, came back at the end of 2013 and started working at Australia Post in the digital mailbox. Um, digital mailbox was a 
uh, it was actually about, I think the third or fourth um, time that the, the business had tried to get something similar off the ground because at the, at, the, at the end of the day it's a very disruptive product it's trying to say don't send letters send them digitally which when that is part of your core business and you're making money out of sending letters it's very very hard to do that and you know, this is a, a story which has been studied many many times you know when you're trying to do that kind of disruptive innovation from within an organization it very often gets squashed mm. and uh, certainly I think this had been the case here that it you know a few times at business case or later on it had been talked about and then dropped off the radar and the way they actually made it happen was by setting it up as an entirely separate entity. So different proprietary limited, different building, different um, processes for hiring, all these kinds of things. So um, by setting it out as its own separate um, entity and saying, go off and do your thing, they actually managed to get a product out into market. Mm. Um, and I came in uh, to uh, help with the technology side. So there was uh, somebody heading up the commercial and strategy piece and then me heading up technology and, mm -hmm. and between us we, we ran this digital mailbox organization. Um, it was a you know, fascinating experience again from having gone from a team of probably about 20 or so in, in iProperty to a team of I think around about 100 in, in, in Australia Post and the, the step change in kind of size of budget oh, that, you're, that you're dealing with, lots and lots of money um, and just the, you know, the, the, what's required of you is very, very different. You know, you're, you're not just dealing with pop into the CEO's office, have a bit of a chat about something and then go and do it. You know, there's a much more process to getting things done. There's more people you need to influence. There's uh, differing uh, interests which you may or may not be aware of. Um, and so I think, I, you know, I think through that process I learned that um, probably a large organisation, when it gets to that size of organisation, doesn't suit me that well. I'm not a political player. I'd rather just kind of get on and make a decision, do it, and then see what happens. Mm. Um, and we did, we did a fair amount of that. And part of the beauty of being in a different building with a different structure was that we were able to influence. Anyway, I ended up staying at Australia Post for about nine months, I think. Yeah. In the end. There was a big period of change. The digital mailbox went through, um, you know, through a restructure. Essentially, I, I, I left the organization. Um, so that was 2014. Uh, I then had six months of fun employment, uh, which I can look back on now as fun, but at the time probably wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's created an awesome podcast. I did create which a podcast. I can't link at that to time. because it's not out there anymore. It is. It oh, is, is it? It is. Okay, good. We'll I'll link to that yeah, in the show notes. <laughs> um, and the, the yeah the actually uh, talk a bit about unemployment because it is um, you know if you're made redundant, mm. no matter how. Resilient, resilient you are, and I think I'm quite a resilient person. I'm generally an optimist. I'm generally the yeah, it'll be fine, something mm. will come up, kind of person. There are days where you certainly, you know, you're like, what did I do wrong? Where did I, you know, why am I, you know, why has this happened to me? All those kind of things go through your head. Mm. Um, and as it happened, I left post in September, um, which is a terrible time for mm. looking for a job because when you're looking for you know particularly senior level roles those kind of jobs are going to happen um, 
they're going to take a few months to hire. Yeah. So you're getting into December by that point, and then you're into January, and then people might be back in February. So in the end, I actually got a job starting in March. So it was six months, but I managed to spend the whole school holidays with my children, which was lovely. And the summer? And the summer, which was great. I keep accidentally being unemployed right in the middle of the winter, which is tough. That's ne <laughs> never a good thing, yeah. Um, I then ended up getting a role with News Corp, and it was the first time I've ever been hired through Twitter. Huh. Uh, I was first contacted about the role by the, um, the person who became my boss through Twitter. Um, and I got a. Oh, I'm glad it's good for something. It does have its uses. That's right. So each time I think of, you know, I should just delete my profile and move on. I then remember, oh, I did get a job through Twitter. Um, anyway, I, I ended up um, interviewing with News Corp uh, as going into a role of head of software engineering, and that was based up in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne, so I was commuting between the two uh, once a week, which was. Uh, not as bad as it sounds, I think. No, it is a grind. It is a grind. Extra thing to do. That's right. When you when you have a team meeting at 9am on Monday morning and you have to get up at 4.30 to be there for that 9am meeting, that can start to wear, um, especially in winter. But it was a role really, uh, I used to joke, I have no um, accountability for anything. Um, I had no accountability for delivery. I had no budget. Um, my role was really pure influence and um, culture leadership. Uh, so I was a, essentially the practice lead for all of the software developers across the digital parts of News Corp. Um, there were other people who looked after allocating um, people to working on particular projects, deciding what those should be, whether they be core platform pieces, whether they be uh, more product-led pieces. But all the people who then worked on those platforms and products uh, reported into me from a practice point of view. So I spent a lot of time in one-on-ones. I spent a lot of time thinking about how we work, uh, what are the things we should be doing differently, what's our hiring pipeline like, um, how do we uh, you know, think about the way that we release software, for instance. Mm -hmm. you know, again, being a large organisation, they, they, were, they were a very different from large organisation from Australia Post, for instance, but still you know, a, a, a big company. How do you get software out of the door mm -hmm. when you've got 100 software developers all working on different platforms which need to be synchronised? Do you get that out of the door? Um, we did some amazing work around bringing together uh, the digital team who were building software and then the more of the uh, enterprise team who operated the environments in which that software ran. Mm -hmm. So a lot of focus, I guess, on, on DevOps as, mm -hmm. a, as a culture piece rather than a, um, a tooling or anything else. Um, so one of the things we did was uh, we brought together the dev and ops people into the same building, for instance, yeah. which seems like a small thing but you know had huge impacts where those people are actually sitting across the aisle from where you are mm -hmm. um, we ran a DevOps day internally and we brought in people from vendors we brought in people from the teams we brought in external speakers and we did a whole day talking about DevOps as a as a thing and what we wanted to do with it we 
would do a, a, a culture survey specifically around DevOps. So using um, a set of tools that have been built by um, Nicole Forsgren um, based on the Westrum typology. Um, and that's talking about um, really about the, the way that culture impacts uh, your, your DevOps or you know, your delivery pipelines. And that was, mm-hmm. a, that was a really interesting um, piece of work that we could do. We could actually see how those questions, we did, that, did them quarterly and see how the answers to those changed over time as mm-hmm. where are the things we need to focus on. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was a really, um, you know, I think that, that was probably the, for me the biggest win of, of being there uh, was getting those two teams together to really work closely. So I want to just dig into this, this knack you have. So you've always been, I think, on the cutting edge is what I would say. So you were often, I remember at the post, you were often the person who we would see things happening in the tech industry or in conferences. And then as soon as we'd hear about it, you'd be doing it. And an example was, I remember for ages at post, and you must have come in, I was probably there for a year or something by the time you arrived. And we'd been talking about trying to do, we should do a hack day. You know, when we get good, then we should do things like hack days. And then I remember just seeing the poster, oh, Andy's running a hack day this week. Um, and then when we heard about self-selection and we heard Sandy Mawali talk about it, probably at Australia or something, then I, and then I heard that you were doing self-selection as well. So what do you think it is about you that wants to, I guess, play on these edges of these exciting I wonder whether it's... Ideas? I wonder whether it's to do with being an engineer, and engineers being attracted by the new shiny, um, and, and you know we have a natural tendency. Oh, that's different. Let's try that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of it is also just an inbuilt uh, tendency I have to not be satisfied with how things are. Uh, I always want things to be better than they are, and I know that when I was at iProperty, I. I spent many years where it felt like I was banging my head against a wall some of the time because I'd be like, we shouldn't be doing this. We really should be doing it that way. You know, everyone else is doing it that way. And, you know, why are we behind? And, you know, I was beating myself up over it. But then you'd, you'd look back and you'd look back at six months ago and you go, oh, actually, we're a lot better than we were six months ago. Yeah. But when you're in it day to day and you think, you know, I, I really want it to be moving faster. I want the change to be faster. Mm. Um, I think... I've always been a quick learner as well, and I think sometimes I will, um, at at the expense sometimes of going deep, I will skim over something and go, that, that's, yeah, that's great, yep, I understand it now, let's go and do it, and then try and bring people along on the mm-hmm. journey. Um, and that's sometimes hard, you know, I think particularly at Post, I think um, to all credit to everyone I was involved with at Post, you know, there was a real desire and and you know, we got the autonomy to go off and do these kind of things, which was fantastic. Um, but I was also very conscious that I had to do a lot more work. I'd sold myself on it. I had to sell other people on it. Mm. And that's usually, for me, I find personally, the missing step is I'm like, yep, I'm on board with this. And then I just assume everyone else is as well. It's like, can't you see this? It's great. Let's yeah, just do yeah, it. Yeah. But you have to go through a lot of those, those steps. And self-selection is a great example of that because we spend probably a good couple of months as a leadership team going through what could possibly go wrong. Yeah. What are we, are we sure we want to do this? You know, let's try and think about what people's reaction to this is going to be. Because if we go in there and say, okay, this is musical chairs, 
people's immediate reaction was, what if there aren't enough chairs? Like, what if I'm the person who's left standing at the end and there isn't anywhere for me to be? <laughs> is there a door to let you through? Which is a perfectly valid concern. But I, you know, I, in my usual kind of optimistic way, had kind of gone, well, that's not going to happen. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and actually what we did, was, which I think was a really good thing we did, uh, and this idea didn't come from me, was to go in front of the team, of the whole team, and get them to put up their, their hopes and fears. What are the things you really want to happen out of this exercise? What are the things you worry about from this exercise? And then for us, it was about going through those things that they were worried about and addressing them and saying, you know, those were exactly the things which came up is, what if um, you know, my role on the team is no longer relevant? In this new structure mm. and so we talk about well you know we've we've done the maths we know that we you know we know that this is the shape of what we're looking at and, and we're confident that it won't be it won't end up that way um, yes yeah, so I think it's I, I, I know going back to your question I think it's really just a case of in many ways continuous improvement and I like to read a lot and mm-hmm. so when I see these things it's kind of like well I'd really like to try that. Yes. But you do have enough empathy to know that if, even if someone else's idea was to put up hopes and fears, yes, you have enough empathy to know that that's an important step, I suppose, and not just to be a, I'm going to bulldoze all this change in. And you run big teams, and change is hard in big teams, so it can be tempting to let things coast, I think. So you're yeah. obviously always up for a challenge internally. I mean, you take your family overseas, you take risks in the jobs that you take on I think ride a motorcycle I do I do all of those things um, and I think you know there's the, yeah maybe there is maybe it does come back to that optimist tendency as well um, I think I balance really well with people who are a little bit more conservative um, I think that's always a good dynamic to have when you have somebody who's holding you back a little bit and say well what about this mm. or have you thought about that um, whereas my natural tendency is to be yeah she'll be right it's mm. fine you know we'll, we'll deal with that if we have to uh, you know because by the same token if you're always thinking about the negatives and the what-ifs and so on then you know a you'll probably go a bit ma- mad just thinking about that all the time and you you'll worry about it but also you will just be uh you won't get things done so i think i think definitely need a balance i think I certainly go more on the bias towards action, and I probably do need somebody who maybe check, keeps me in check a little bit sometimes. But I'm also very conscious of not railroading people and saying, we're going to do this. Mm. I think that's, I, I think sometimes you have to do that. Mm. I think sometimes you, you can do it through a, quite a, you know, it's all your decision, but really this is how we're going to do it. Mm. Or you can just say, no, we actually need to do this. Mm. But I, I don't like to impose things. So, for instance, with the team I work with now, um, there's a, a mixed attitude to pair programming, for instance. Um, some people are fully on board with it, love doing it, will do it when they can. Some people really are reluctant and probably will never do it. And some people are in the middle and will do it you know, as and when appropriate and, and so on. And I, I don't think that it's my role necessarily to say all people must pair from or, you know, or mm-hmm. for these kinds of things, everyone must do pairing or those kinds of things. What I can do is talk about the experiences I've had with pair programming or um, point to relevant um, case studies from other people and, mm-hmm. and their experience with it. And also take it from the point of view of, 
not just pairing as, you know, using it as an example, pairing as a solution, but what's the problem we're trying to solve? So if we get into discussions around code review, for instance, and what's bad about code review, I might talk about pairing as a potential option, and maybe we should do more pairing. Mm. You know, eventually people might pick up on it, uh, or they might just go, well, he's always banging on about that, and we'll just ignore it. Um, But I think it's important that people come along on the journey and make those realizations themselves. My Mm. role is not to tell people what to do, it's to influence and provide guidance in what we do. Um, And I think the same is true of um, technology choices as well. Mm. Um, I actually had a very good conversation this morning with a a group of people where we were talking about technology choice and those two different ways of operating. One where you just let people choose whatever they want and you end up with a hundred different ways of doing the same thing. Or the one where you're saying, this is, we do this platform and we do it one way. we, we came to a conclusion that really it's somewhere in the middle. There's probably a, these are our base ways of doing these things and solving these problems, but there's always the door open for how do we come up with better ways of doing that as, a, as technologists? What are some new platforms we could bring in? Mm. And there's always going to be in your team the people who are just a bit more keen at looking around at what else is out there and they want it, they're going to want to be able to experiment and stuff, aren't they? Absolutely. And I hope that we give people the ability to do that. We, you know, we do do hack days, so people get a chance to play with that. We do, um, with a lot of the projects we work on, people will propose ideas for new ways of doing things. We are big believers in continuous improvement as, as just a core cornerstone of what we do. Um, it's interesting, we don't talk about agile, really. Mm-hmm. We don't, it's not a thing we talk about. We, we, you know, we've co-opted some agile practices. You know, certainly all the teams um, do stand-ups of some description where they're, they're just getting together once a day and, and talking about what they're doing and where they're heading and what they're stuck on. But the one thing we do kind of religiously, I guess, is continuous improvement and looking at where are we, where do we want to be, what are the things we want to solve. Uh, both from a technology point of view and from a process point of view, we like to challenge ourselves. And we really like to just say, well, let, we don't know if we have the answer. Let's try something. If it works, fantastic. If it doesn't, we'll just stop doing it. Yeah. We don't have egos of, well, this was my idea and I'm not going to back down from it. Mm. If I suggest that we do something, we start doing it, it turns out to be a complete waste of time, I'll be the first person to say, well, look, this isn't working. Let's stop doing it. Mm. And I think that's really, really important. Mm. I love all of your we, we, we language as well. You're very inclusive in the way you talk about the teams. But I also wanted to say, the first time I got told about you before I met you was by Rick, who was mm-hmm. babysitting your role before you arrived at Post. And he said, oh, Andy's really great. He can go very, very broad, but he can go very deep as well. And you've just confessed to teaching yourself Pearl back in the day. You're obviously a technologist that can be on the tools, but you do have these other abilities as well. You know about influencing people and seeing you speak at loads of conferences, etc. Why do you think, how is it that you're so T-shaped, do you think? I think it's just, I think it's probably a symptom of I get bored easily. Um, and I, I will, I love, I'm also a something of a, an obsessive about things. I go through phases of being obsessed about things and I'll go really, really deep in that and that will be my world for a couple of months. 
And I'd be like, oh, I'm a bit bored of that. I'll, I'll get obsessed about something else mm-hmm. instead. And I go through phases of that. So I think that I think it's partially to do with that tendency. Um, I think it's also, I, if I think about it from a work perspective, the, I a lot of my time is thinking about teams and structure and process and you know the the, the higher level stuff. But I also really enjoy going deep in the technology side because it helps me understand the people that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And I found that in the larger organizations, I struggled to really empathize well without actually seeing what people were working on. Mm. I, I need, I'm quite visual, I suppose. And people can say to me, this, this application that we've got is a, is a steaming mess. It's really hard to change. It's, it's you know, got all these problems. And intellectually, I can understand that. But I find it hard to really quantify it until I'm actually in there with them working on it. So when I was at Post, one of the first things I did, I actually got there just before Christmas, which was a great time of year because I could spend my first few weeks going deep with the team who were there mm. and actually pairing with somebody and them showing me in their IDE, you know, these 20 tabs they had open just to change one small thing or whatever it might be. And then I could get it. I'd go, oh, right, now I see what you're talking about. Now when you talk about the complexity of it, this mm. is what you're talking about. And then that helps me talk to other people about that and express that in a way. Mm. So what I really like about where I am now is that I have both the the breadth of talking about strategy and going out to potential customers and talking with real customers and um, working on the team structure and doing uh, performance reviews and, and you know helping people with their career development. But I can also sit there and write some code mm. sometimes. Uh, and I try very hard not to be the person who writes the really, really important code that nobody else <laughs> understands and then you've built yourself into a role for life. Yeah. I try to you know, do things on the periphery. I don't always succeed with that, but I try. But knowing that really, really well now means that when we do have discussions around how hard would it be to mm. X, I can have some level of understanding I still need to lean on the team and you know when it really comes mm. down to okay we're actually thinking about doing this I'm not going to be the one who's going to tell you yeah, it's two months because mm. the team will hate me when it actually turns out to be six months um, but I can empathize much more with the team and when they're talking in retro about you know this thing is really really bugging me and every time that our tests fail because of this it's really bad I can go yeah I've been hit by that too and I can say well look let's spend the time to fix that mm. because I can empathise with that. Yes, you're not just listening to an empty whinge. That's right. You've actually experienced it. Very good. Do you think today's CTOs have to be like that? CTO is one of those things which is a really hard role to define because it means very different things in very different organisations. So, Really? I have a really clear idea of what it is, but Hmm. I think it's one of those things like when I hear people talk about agile coaching, it's like agile coaching is can be very, very different. Maybe when you're in it and you're so close to it, you can see all the variety. So I think you've got the, you've got the startup CTO founder, wrote all the product, wrote everything, you know, and is now trying to, to, to grow that. You've got the, 
um, larger organization CTO who may be backed up with the VP of engineering, you know, where somebody's looking after the process side and somebody else is looking after the technology side. Mm. You've got the very large kind of more consulting company CTO where they're the visionary and the, you know, we should be talking about blockchain and AI and whatever else. Um, I do a little bit of all of that. I do, so I look after product and technology, um, but I'm not a founder. I was, you know, I've come in many years into the journey and and um, I'm riding on the coattails of others. I've, I do a little bit of, the, yeah, def- certainly the, the technology piece, certainly guiding that. I rely on people far smarter than me to come up with the, the actual technology direction. I just try and synthesize that. And yeah, then I, I do do a little bit of coding and I do a little bit of what would be a VP engineering kind of role where I'm looking after teams and people. So there's a, there's a whole kind of smattering of different things that mm-hmm. I end up doing. Um, but in different organizations, different people will take the CTO's title and just do one of those or yes. do even more than that. Yes. Hmm. So what was your remit when you came to Marketplace Art? And, you know, sometimes what people ask you to come in and do is different from what you realize has to be done when you get in there. And you've probably seen that when you've gone to different workplaces. Um, how do you approach those conversations hmm. when... It can be obvious to you, you're on board with your ideas of what we need to do to change. So the remit, I guess, really was um, take the business from being a, uh, a provider of services to a number of businesses that we own or have invested in um, and take it to a thing that we can go out to market with and talk about as a, as a product or as a platform that we can sell to people. So that that was kind of, I guess, overarching the strategic goal. Um, as part of that, I think we had to make a lot of, not changes to the, how the team operate, but really change about how the team think about what the product is. Um, it's, it's not a thing that's gonna run 10 websites, it's a thing that's gonna run hundreds or thousands or you know, who, who knows how many mm. sites um, across, the, across, the, uh, across the world. Um, and also from a technology point of view, um, as you go into larger clients, you stop being a full service provider where you're, you're a, a front end website and you're a back end management portal and you're a, whatever else you might be, you're now a component within somebody's larger infrastructure. So if you're going out to big enterprise clients, you've got to play nicely in their, in their ecosystem. You've got to have connectors and APIs and all those things so that you can talk to other systems and be part of a, a, a larger picture than just yourself. So strategically, we've done a lot of work around moving from a self-contained platform to being a, a component within a larger piece. Mm. Um, but did they know that when you came on board or did you no. have to socialize no. those ideas? Yes, so I, I do have to sell the ideas, um, but also sometimes you just have to do it. Mm. So I, I spend a lot of time, uh, the managing director, who was one of the founders of the business, was also um, you know, very heavily involved in the product and the build of the product. He understands it really, really well. Um, and so we spend a lot of time together talking through what the team are doing, where are we going, what's next, and you know, we, we, we have a, a good working relationship between us to, to figure out what those things are. But sometimes um, you know in your heart of hearts that this is the right thing to do, and you, you do your best job of, of explaining why, and sometimes it just doesn't stick. And so 
Now, I have been guilty sometimes of doing a skunk works. Well, we're just going to do this and we won't tell anyone about it. And then when we're further down the road, we'll say, well, look, this is what it is. And this is why we've done it. And, you know, and it's then been adopted. So, which, you know, there's an element of risk in that. You, mm. you, you could shoot yourself in the foot. Um, and I certainly don't like to, uh, you know, transparency is a, is a big plus in my eyes. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's, it's, it's striking the right balance sometimes, you know, yeah. and, and coming up with those risk reward things of, of making a decision on should you go down a particular path or not. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I've had to sell things to the, the, the executive team, certainly have to sell things to the, to the rest of the development and product team around, you know, this is the strategy of the business. This is why we're doing things. This is why it's important. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're as good as we could be around that. I think there's always room for improvement. But I think, it, you know, we, I think we're better now than we were at saying this is why we're doing things. Because mm. unless people really get why there's a piece of work happening, it's really hard for them to make good decisions about that. Yeah. Hey, um, you're a man who understands culture and people enjoying their work very well. Um, okay. I'm always interested by the topics that I see you present at conferences as well. Sometimes it's all about learning, creating a learning org, and not everyone, I guess, puts that at the top of their priority list when there's a long list of problems everywhere. Um, what, what are the top non-negotiables for you in terms of culture that you want for the teams? For me, I think it's really important that everybody has the ability to learn that they have the ability to develop Um, and if that sometimes means that you lose somebody from a role that they're really good in because they need to develop then so be it you know I've certainly seen the opposite case where somebody's been just so crucial in the role they're doing but they want to advance but you can't let them advance because then they wouldn't be doing the thing they're really good at right now and they end up getting annoyed and they quit. Mm. And then you lose both the good person and the work they were and doing. The potential, so yes. it's, that's a, it's a double whammy of bad. Yeah. So I think it's really, really important that if, you know, no matter where somebody is in the organisation, if they've got a desire to learn about something else, that they get the ability to do that. Yeah. I think it's really important that, you know, I've talked a bit about continuous improvement. I think it's really important that teams are empowered to act on that and they have... Um, both the, the, the regular discipline of thinking about that, but also the time set aside to then act on that. So not just a retro where we all sit around and whinge about stuff, but we come up with an action and then somebody actually says, well, I am going to work on this. And that means that I'm not going to do that other thing because we said this thing's more important. I think that's, a, for me, a, a non-negotiable. Um, what else about culture? I think the other thing is that you know, you have to be very deliberate about how you grow your culture. Um, and in a business like ours where we are growing, it, it's really important to me that we don't grow too fast mm-hmm. as far as the team goes. I think if you add 10 people over a period of a number of months, you've got a real hard job to get those people all aligned mm-hmm. and to, you know, really reflect on what it is that's important about the way you work. So I think that's also another big piece that I'm always really conscious of. I could, you know, I've, I've got the autonomy to go off and hire a bunch more people right now. Yeah. Um, but if they all suddenly appeared at once, that would be a, probably a, a problem for our, for our team. Yes. 
Mm. You don't want to change, what Collar says, you don't want to change too much of the water in the fish tank at once. Absolutely. The thing which, the, the quote which always, I'm always reminded of is um, Kerry Rusnak, who is a, is a keen rower, would talk about, um, you know, you, 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 if you've got a team of people who are in a boat um, and you've got new rowers coming on board, you don't put all the new rowers in the same boat together because they're not going to be able to do it. You've got mm-hmm. to seed the people who know how to row and the people who want to learn how to row together because otherwise you're just going to end up with one boat which sinks and one boat which is steaming off in ahead. Correct. This is almost a question that you asked me, I think, on the podcast. <laughs> so what do you do with rotten eggs? Oh, or rotten apples. Oh, God. Is there such a thing? And, and what happens when those people are colleagues of yours? So? Mm. I think there's two groups of people. There's those who don't fit in the smaller environment that they're in. So in the microclimate of their particular team. Um, and if you put them into another team, all of a sudden you see a real change. They suddenly, you know, they, they're over there in that team. I just wasn't getting it. it the, what they were working on didn't interest me or had a real clash with that person or the goal of that team wasn't explained to me properly. But over here, I feel like I'm at home. And yeah. you can see sometimes just by somebody moving from one team to another that they, you know, they, they take off. The other is somebody who just doesn't fit with the overall macro climate of the business. So they just, they're not on board with the leadership or the overall mission of the business or the overall kind of culture of the business and they're just rubbing against it. Mm. And I heard a really interesting thing recently which I think is a, is a fascinating way of looking at it is it's not you, it's not me, it's the relationship where the problem is. So, you know, this person is not bad, that organisation is not bad, but the relationship between those two can be bad. And if that's the case, then you have to address that. And that might mean, you know, somebody has to leave an organisation. Um, but I think it's really crucial to spot those early and to act on them. Mm. Um, you know, and, and yes, you have to find out first, is it just that team, try them somewhere else. Maybe after a couple of goes of that, you start to get the intent, you know, the impression that it's just actually not just that team mm. as a whole. They're not gelling with this organisation, and you know, the, the, it, it may then be a case of somebody is is going to leave the organisation. Yeah. Okay. One more, if you wouldn't mm. mind. Um, how do you manage the workplace that people want to work in to be engaging and and have them enjoy it? Um, and how do you balance that with the cold, hard realities of, of being commercial and making a buck? That's always a challenge. And I think the smaller your team is, the more you feel it, because sometimes there's types of work that people just don't find interesting. I think it's always important that people will do their best work when they're interested in it. And so wherever possible, you, you try and find things that people are interested for them to work on because they're going to excel at it. And I've seen that in, in, in my team now that, that there's a particular project that you know, people are, have, have really gravitated towards and they're really super engaged in that. And, and you can see just in the way they sit, in, mm-hmm. in, in how they talk about it, they're really passionate about it. And that's, that's fantastic when you, when you get that confluence of something which is important commercially and something which somebody's interested in. They come together and you've just got a winning combination. However, it's not always going to be like that. Um, and I think 
in the cases where somebody has to do something which they may not necessarily 100% love, it's talking through A, why that's important to the business, but B, talking through, um, you know, that, that, that it's not going to be this forever. Mm. Um, and the reality is that, that I like long-lived teams. I like, um, you know, teams to have a, a long-lived mission where they're engaged in something for a long period of time. But long-lived tends to mean six months max, you know, yeah. which actually isn't that long. Um, because priorities change, teams change, um, all sorts of things shift. So I try and hold the ship together and say, well, let's try and keep the teams as they are for you know, six months and we'll readdress that in six months. And, I, and people get that. You know, If you're open with people and say, look, I know you really wanted to be over there, but this needs doing. You'd be really good at it. If you can do it, you know, then you know, we'll, we'll certainly reassess it in six months. I don't think you can promise and say, do this and then mm. we'll give you the shiny because <laughs> that's always a dangerous situation to get yourself into. Mm. Um, but I think to be open and honest with people and say, look, I know this is not your favorite thing, but we will reassess it. And, you know, we do care about what's important to you as well. Then that's, you know, that, that would certainly help in that situation. Yeah. Andy, it's been so lovely chatting to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time. It just went so quickly. Might have to do a part two another time. <laughs> I'll just hit stop now. I can. Well, that was Andy Kalk, CTO of Marketplace Art. I really enjoyed our chat. I always look forward to running into Andy at conferences and events. He quite often presents, and we've done a double act of emceeing the first conference for the last couple of years together. The Weekly Reboot is your regular Friday debrief of things we've heard and seen coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond. Rate, review and importantly subscribe in your podcast app to get it in your ears every Friday and we'll be there again next Friday at 4pm. 